beverage producers have access to oodles of data. From DTC customers, to key accounts, to media contacts, data is the oil that makes the machine run, to coin a phrase by my friend Paul Mabry. In today's episode, I interview a visionary in the space who is looking at how wineries and wine regions can leverage big data to make better business decisions. Emma and I lead a discussion on using data and technology for better public relations, and our tip of the week is gaining customer data while maintaining trust. So if you like this podcast, please consider supporting us with a small commitment by visiting patreon.com slash HTB podcast. Subscribers will receive member-only content, which includes some additional marketing advice from yours truly, as well as a few more extras. You can also visit anchor.fm slash HTB podcast slash support to help us out. Now it's time to hit the bottle. Welcome to Hit the Bottle Podcast, a practical guide to beverage marketing through the lens of strategy, technology, and leadership. From exploring the buyer journey to leveraging modern public relations, to how marketing automation is changing the way we engage with customers. Hit the Bottle goes above and beyond the ordinary to ask and answer the right questions. Each week we chat with industry experts, explore practical applications, and discuss the newest trends all to provide you with the insights and strategies you need to create successful marketing programs. It's time to hit the bottle. Our next guest is an award-winning author, journalist, and co-founder of Enolytics, a company committed to bringing the power of big data to the wine industry. Clients include Champagne Bollinger and Fresenet USA. This year, the company is a finalist for the Born Digital Wine Awards in the innovation category. She's a certified yoga instructor and contributes bi-weekly to A Balanced Glass, an online community founded by industry leader Rebecca Hopkins for people in the wine biz who actively seek health and wellness. Most recently, she's been shortlisted for Columnist of the Year by Louis Roederer, International Wine Awards for her work at Forbes. I am very pleased to have her on the show today. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Kathy Hoyha. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. For the benefit of those that uh, may not be necessarily familiar with the term, can you tell us what big data is? Yeah, sure. Uh let me start, though, with a caveat that I am not a data scientist. Um, I am not an engineer or a coder or a programmer or any of the other professional identities that go along with the world of data. I'm a, I'm a journalist. I'm a communicator. Um, I'm a relationship builder. That's what I do, um, both in my, in my work within analytics and outside. But as I have come to, to work in data and to understand data, I see that for so long in the industry, what data has meant is qualitative. It's qualitative data, it's research, it's surveys, it's, uh, it's questions and answers uh, subjectively written and based in the social sciences research and valid um, from and really well done for, for the most part. What we're trying to bring to the table is the other side of the coin where we're talking about quantitative data where rather than several hundred or several thousand surveys survey responses we're talking about several million objectively generated data points about wine uh, that are generated by consumers or are generated within the industry by the trade um, generated on social media all of the ways that data is generated around wine um, are available now in a more accessible and, uh, uh, and, and in a way that we can analyze it now, we can grab it, we can analyze it that we haven't been able to do before. 
And I think that that sort of blows things out of the water a little bit, honestly, um, because it's something that we can do now that we that we couldn't before. And we're talking about words, of course. We're talking about images. We're talking about audio. We're talking about language. And so that's all part of part of that big data cloud. So absolutely, it's all part of data. And the a lot of times data gets defined as um, in terms of what's storable, you know, can it, there are so many different kinds and varieties and flavors of data um, that it, you can't sort of put it all in one place. So you, so you quote unquote aggregate it, you pull different kinds of data together uh, in different formats and you uh, make them talk to each other so that we can sort of uh, discern what can companies insights and do with big data. I mean, how is it applicable to companies to, to use this big data for their for the marketing purposes? For marketing purposes, I think it's really exciting because we could do, for example, things like natural language processing. So um, consumers, frankly, are telling us every moment of every day what they think about wine, what they think about, about your wine, what they think about your neighbor's wine. Um, and so our tools of data, they go out and they find that uh, from the quantitative level. So the machine learn. This is where machine learning comes in okay. when we're talking about big data, because it's not something that any one person could do. We need to train the tools to go out and analyze and do the analysis and identify the images, for example. Uh, so uh, if a brand wants to know what's the context for how consumers in different parts of the country are drinking their wine. Maybe in one part of the country, it's urban rooftops. And in another part of the country, it's, you know, picnics in the mountains. And another part of the country, it's, uh, you know, sunset at, at a beach. Those are all and data points, frankly. Those are all data points that we can help a brand understand that the consumer, this is how consumers are enjoying their wine. And that, in turn helps the brand understand how to communicate back to those consumers and to meet them where they are. Let me see if I understand this. Um, and that is that what you're doing um, and you know what, what the potential of big data is, is basically taking disparate pieces of information, not just written, um, but like photos, like photos of people on the rooftops. And that's how you know that that that, that part of the country is um, interested in in drinking wine and rooftops. And so that's so that's pretty that's pretty powerful tools in being able to just kind of aggregate all of that information down to a point where you could say, hey, you know, this is this looks like a trend. Yeah. And the cool thing about doing it at the at the really big scale is that, I mean, certainly uh, the analytics tools that are available to anybody, literally anybody, are already pretty powerful and are already using machine learning. But when you, so you can follow your brand, of course you can follow your brand and know what's going on, but you can also go a lot deeper and a lot broader in the sense of you can, we can also help to understand the whole category we can un help to understand uh, the category over time, the trend over time, globally rather than, um, or in addition to going really deeply into any one market, looking at your competitors and how consumers are talking about your competitors' brands. Those are all ways that, uh, that the data is already there. We just have to go and get it and understand how to analyze it. And that's the strength of my team. If I'm if if I'm a producer and I have access to this big data, it does seem a little overwhelming to me to um, have so many different data points and so much potential just information that comes in. So, um, so tell me how you've got this concept um, at Analytics um, where you basically have this concept of how how important analog is to this whole equation. Can you shed some light on that for us? Yeah, so analog, I have to, I have to confess, is my, is my theme for, for the year. Um, as I said, I'm not, I'm not a data scientist. 
Um, I'm a communicator and a relationship builder, and it's my job to sit down with people and to meet with them face to face and to taste wine with people in a group. Um, and I love that. I love the sort of hand to hand nature of wine. Uh, when we first got it, I first got into wine 15 years ago. That's the first thing somebody, anybody ever said to me was wine is about relationships. And so that's where, that's where I start and that's where I finish. I say that all the time. <laughs> that's where, and that's where, that's where the data honestly starts and the data finishes as well. Um, sure. Uh, you need to know and to understand the industry enough to say, this is what's possible with data. And this is maybe who has data and this is who might want data. Um, and then, so there's the analog nature of that when you have to be sort of on the street in order, in order to understand what that is. And then um, my role is to build the relationships with those people, um, not with the businesses per se, but with the people who both have data and could benefit from data. And so there's that analog part of it. And then certainly next step is for my team to do what they do best, which is the analysis and the aggregating and the sort of evaluation of the data to give us the results. And that's, that's what they do. And there's not really a lot of analog going on there. But then once we have the results, they're sort of, we're back to analog. We started with analog and then in the middle is the analysis. And now we're back to analog because we need to know what to do with that, with those results. We need to know um, the reality of the winery's situation and how they could actually put something into practice that we have discovered or that we have learned from the data itself. So analog, I'm just beginning, analytics is three years old and I'm really, it's becoming really clear to me how important uh, the relationships are that we all start with and then how important they are that we end with as well. So you're basically helping your clients interpret the data and put some practical uses to it. Yeah, and that's not something that we thought would be necessary, honestly, at the be at yeah. the beginning, because at the beginning we thought, okay, so so sure we've got uh, we've got the clients who are interested, and we we're helping them with the data, and then naturally they're going to know what to do with the results. But that's not always true, and it's actually rarely true, um, as we as we've learned. So that kind of concluding analog part has become more and more important um, because we can we can talk about data all day long, but if it doesn't uh, sort of get out onto the street, so to speak, or if nobody knows what to do with it, then it's all been a waste of time. Yeah, I, I think in you know in terms of um, something that people can probably relate to, and that is is in terms of like um, financial analysis of a company, right? And that is that um, your bookkeeper, accountant, um, controller can give you all the information about like, you know, here's your net income and here is your balance sheet and here is, you know, uh, your forecast for the next several for several months. But what that doesn't tell you is what actions you need to take as a company to become more profitable, to increase revenue and what have you. And that's really where um, I think in terms of that kind of analog idea is 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 taking that data and then being able to say, okay, here are some suggestions on how you would use this to move forward. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. And something that we have seen um, is really useful is is the illustrations, is the visualizations of the data. When somebody says data, maybe when when I say data to you, mm -hmm. you think of a spreadsheet. You think of you right. know an Excel spreadsheet or a CSV file or something like that. And there are, uh, there are people who, who know what to do with that. Um, I'm not one of them. Um, and most people that I, that I meet don't either. The, the truth is that the answer is there. It's just that it's in line 11,233 column, you know, XY or something like that. So the, so the analysis uh, creates organically visualizations so that we can read 
we can read the data better and it tells the story. It tells the story of what we've been studying and what the team has discovered. Um, and it also helps the, the telling that story through images and through visualizations is honestly what gets somebody up out of their chair and going down the hall and trying to convince their boss that we need to make a change. That's what's going to move the needle, not just endless reams of Excel spreadsheets. So, um, so what are some of the challenges that uh, beverage producers uh, might face in implementing a big data strategy? It's, um, it actually goes back to the analog thing and it goes back to the culture. If the, if the, the business, uh, the producer, the winery isn't uh, ready to embrace it or isn't ready to take the time and kind of devote attention to it, um, then we're sort of behind the eight ball before we before we even start. There, there doesn't need to be a data expert in house, but there does, I think, uh, need to be willingness. Let's try. Let's see. Let's see what's possible. Let's see what you can do. Like, let's sit down. Let's have a conversation. Let's talk about pain points. Let's talk about what data is available to meet those pain points. And honestly, we're seeing more and more that uh, oftentimes that data, the producer or the wine business already has it. It's just that they haven't been able to extract it because it's buried you know, in that Excel spreadsheet again. Um, so that's actually, uh, that's a bridge. It's a bridge when, when somebody understands that they actually already own a fair amount of data. And it's kind of a question of teasing out and visualizing it and packaging it in a way that's understandable and a way that we could see and that, and that makes sense to them and gives them actionable steps moving forward. Overcoming that challenge doesn't mean you need to go hire a data person and bring them on staff. Overcoming that challenge means you need to be willing to try. That, and I think that in particular can be um, uncomfortable for um, wineries, breweries, distilleries, because I think there's a lot of inertia uh, in the wine business and they there, I, I encountered all the time where clients have been doing things the same way for decades and it's worked for them up to this point, but they also are struggling now because frankly, there are other wineries or distributors or distilleries out there who are, who are implementing a data strategy and who are um, actually um, able to move beyond that. So Overcoming that kind of uh, culture of inertia in the wine business is overall, I think, is a is a big challenge and it's something that I'm hoping to address, you know, through this podcast and through other means. And honestly, Mike, the biggest uh, when when change has happened, when there when a, a company has said, "Look, we don't get data. We don't we don't understand it. We don't get it. Like we we don't know what's going on." But we know there's something here. And we know that if we used it the right way, it would give us a competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. Honestly, that's all we need. That's, that's what we need. We need um, people with an open enough mind to be willing to say, look, I don't get it either. And honestly, that's where I'm coming from. I didn't get data. When I, when I started or when I saw necessarily the opportunity. And, and the truth is that I, I'm, I'll never be that analyst. I'll never be that person. There are people who, who are so pro at this, who, are so, who just do this, and it's amazing to me what, what they do. Um, I'm, that's not me. I'm, I am I'm the analog person. And I'm the one who's here to talk through with the wine person what's going on. So hopefully that makes it that makes it easier. 
uh, for everybody because I I get I get them and I get that they don't get data. Um, so let's go through that together. <laughs> I'm here for you. <laughs> this is all great in theory. Do you have a practical scenario that you've worked on with um, a client that you can share with us? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think I might have mentioned earlier natural language processing. Um, a client, an Italian client, wanted to know um, why one of their high-end red wines weren't, weren't doing well. There, it was, it's a pain point for them. They made this huge investment and it just was not doing well in the U.S., so, um, so we took, uh, we partnered with, uh, with one of the, the data partners in our ecosystem and we analyzed 12 million data records, um, around label scans and tasting notes. And we were able to use, um, a technique, a, a machine learning tool called natural language processing, um, or NLP for short, <laughs> as I know now and did not know when Analytics started, believe me, um, to analyze the tasting notes that everyday consumers were putting uh, through into this app. Um, and we were able to segment by market. And the thing is that this app is a mobile app, and um, which means that you're, you have it in your hand and every data record that we get, that we see, and this is really cool, um, is, is tagged with a latitude and a longitude that's accurate to within a hundred feet. Wow. So we know where they are. Like we're basically, these are, these are the fish, like these are the fish for wineries. We know exactly where they are and we know what they're saying about the wines. So we were able to say, okay, look, so here is how consumers in this neighborhood in lower Manhattan are talking about, these are literally the words that they're using to talk about your wine in this neighborhood. And now let's compare that to how consumers in this neighborhood of Miami are talking about your wine. And then let's go to Texas because you have a strong uh, footprint in Houston. And let's look at the neighborhoods where your wine is for sale in restaurants. And how are they, how are consumers there talking about your wine? And that really helps to, uh, to create the context uh, around uh, around the sentiment of your wine and how consumers are really, you know, nobody's, nobody's watching them make these notes, you know? Like it's objective, it's spontaneously generated. And I love that. I love that about the kind of data that we work with because it's, um, it's authentic. It's, it's um, spontaneously generated. Yeah. So that's an example. Another example is um, using machine learning tools uh, applied to social media and being able at the, the qualitative and millions and millions, millions of, of posts um, and records to track something like a trend, like chilled red wine, for example, and looking at that and being like, okay, so what's the language and what are the images? What are the imageries? What are the hashtags? around this trend today compared to even a year ago or three years ago or 12 years ago. And let's track that. Let's track that geographically as well. And what does that tell me about where I should go in terms of um, production or branding or packaging or, or those decisions that, that your listeners will need to make all the time? It's more information that's really and that's really it's already there it's already available it's already you know out there it's a question of of grabbing it and analyzing it um and putting it into into language that we can all understand and make action take action on fantastic so before we wrap up any last minute thoughts regarding um, big data analytics or anything else it's just that it's so, it's so exciting. It's so exciting. And I, I never thought I'd be here. I never thought that I'd be three years into this business. Um, but boy, it is a whole other way to be in wine. It's a whole, being an entrepreneur is a whole other way to be in wine. Uh, seeing the wine world through data is a whole other way to, uh, to experience wine. Um, 
and it's really exciting. Um, and it's still three years in, um, edgy. Like it's still, there's something different every day. And what the business is now is not what we thought it was going to be at the beginning. Um, because we're, we're responsive. We're trying to adapt to what the industry wants and what the industry can bear. And that's, you know, it's different now than it was when we started. Uh, and that's great. That's great. And we're patient and we have, you know, we have the willingness to, to see this through um, and to see what else we can do with it. Kathy Hoyha, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. But first, we'll take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. She's been on the show before, where she brought insights to a discussion of market intelligence and data. She's spent a decade writing about wine, food, and spirits, and she's the founder of Vine Wire Consulting, specializing in CRM, data analysis, and digital marketing for the wine and spirits industry. Welcome back, Thea Dwelle. Thanks for having me again. Uh, a Texas native, she has over 10 years of experience with digital strategy and data-driven marketing. In 2017, she joined William Chris Vineyards as their director of marketing and public relations. She also serves on the marketing committee for Texas Hill Wine Texas Hill Country Wineries Association and works on national wine policy as an active member of Wine America. It's Tara Guthrie. Thank you for having me. And she's the T to my crumpets, the J to my silent bob, VP of, <laughs> VP of client relations at Balzac Communications, my colleague and co-host, Emma Criswell. Hello. <laughs> Thanks all for being on. This is a running joke, by the way. Uh, uh, no. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> this is my favorite part of every single podcast. I pull, I pull out. I long to be your tea for your crumpets. Yeah. I feel left out. Yeah. <laughs> I pull. I pull out a new one every uh, every episode. So, uh, thanks all for. You're inspiring me to improve my bio. <laughs> that's that's what. Get a little more creative. So thanks for all all for being on. Uh, and uh, today we are talking about how we can leverage data uh, in beverage PR. You know, it's one of those areas where we have access to this, but it's underutilized. So uh, I think I'd like to start off um, talking to Tara uh, about, you know, how she leverages data um, for William Chris. Uh, sure. So um, I'll isolate this down to how I use it in a PR perspective, because I, I like to look at our data from a holistic standpoint. Um, it's it's kind of difficult to, to pare it down because you do look at so many things, but you don't want to be swimming in data or collecting data just to, to collect data. Um, what I really look at from a PR perspective I like to dig into my CRM systems and identify some of my top markets uh, and my top market opportunities. Uh, that's like one of the basic things that sometimes you may not think about. Um, and that actually drives my influencer marketing strategy more than anything and developing organic uh, influencer relationships. Um, and then also looking at where our products perform best both through our um, our point of sale system and through our depletion reports on the wholesale side. So looking at, at what products move best and then also looking at how to uh, pitch different um, media within those market segments, just based off of what I know um, our audience is responding to. So, yeah, I, you know, I think it needs to be said that, that where, a lot of people's minds go when they think of PR is to media relations. And I'm sure that we will cover that extensively during this discussion, but we also take a more holistic view of PR and that, you know, there are many different audiences for what you have to communicate. 
and it is beneficial to take a more holistic approach and work cross function to be able to more insightfully pitch whatever it is that you are trying to say to people. Exactly. Because, um, just like in, in marketing, uh, I mean, I read a really, really great book and it's an oldie, but a goodie. It's the one-to-one future. Um, it's kind of the same approach to pitching, right? Um, I don't like to do a blanket, uh, blast with my agency out to just everybody. I like to keep that very targeted and personalized to the outlets that I'm pitching. And then I also like to correlate that somehow to what kind of business impact that I'm looking for. Um, kind of working backwards, I guess, from what is the result that I'm looking for, and then identifying a handful of data points that can guide where it is that I want to focus my efforts in terms of media outreach. Um, is it is it going to be 100% through the social space? Is it going to be a long lead publication? Um, solving for the end result first and then working backwards and looking at what we have available to us. So Emma, how do, how do we approach that? I, I think we approach it in a very similar way. And this is the second time on the podcast, we've actually brought up the importance of kind of working from the end and going that direction. Um, Start with the end in mind. Yeah, absolutely. And for us, it's definitely very similar. You know, sending something to a thousand people is going to result in a lot of high name and everyone knows there's nothing personal about that. And some of the biggest, you know, hits I've gotten, you know, for the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, you know, things like that. It's when I say, hi, so-and-so, it was great seeing you last week, you know, would love to see you again soon. This is what we're doing now, rather than sending some blanket statement. And it's also definitely about thinking, like, what you want the outcome to be. Do you want this to be in a newspaper? Do you want this to be online? Do you want this to be just something where you want people to get acquainted with your new client and try samples of their wine? Or is there something coming up that you want to be covered or even just be considered for in the future? Well, and it's important to be able to track that interaction because, you know, uh, we're a small agency. So, you know, we know like who we've been talking to, but, you know, in a large organization, it's, you know, that, that needs to be tracked and that really leads to a, to a CRM type of solution. And so Thea, you know, you are on the receiving end of a lot of these types of pitches. So what do you think in terms of like the, the, the data points that people should be recording so that, you know, when they're reaching out to you, they have a more effective, uh, Pitch to you. Oh my God. Let me just say for the first thing, I, if every PR agency had CRM, I would die and go to heaven because the dear name thing, or I have been dear fermentation because apparently people think I'm Tom Wark for the last eight years. So little, little things like that, that can be resolved in a very, very little investment are huge. But also to your point, targeting, one of my pet peeves is being targeted geographically. You know, it goes both ways. I live in, well, I used to live in San Francisco, but I do live in California wine country, but I'm consistently bombarded with invitations to media events in New York, Milan, Paris. And legitimately, you know, at the time I want to have a snarky reply and say, I'm sure you want to include a plane ticket. That would be great. But knowing that that's not feasible, a little bit of research on the end of the PR agency would be able to say, oh, you're not local. You're obviously not going to be able to fly in for this two-hour media event. That is certainly a key point. I think topics of interest is a critical factor. Not everybody covers spirits. I cover a lot of spirits. Not everybody covers fighting varietals under $20. I I don't. You know, a lot of people cover fine wine. A lot of people don't. Those basic points would go a long way. Beyond that, uh, sometimes gender is important. Where you live can be important, but it really also helps to know where their readers are. And that can be accomplished by a, a simple ask or some Google Analytics snapshots, things like that. So you know where their audience might be reading, but you know who they are and developing a personal relationship with those people that you can then track with metrics in CRM so you can actually pull a list and pitch appropriately. Right. I mean, you know, it's it's one thing to do the research, but it's another thing to actually record that research so that, you know, somebody else like you know if i if if i had the interaction with you but 
Emma needs to reach out to you, she can look and say, oh, Mike, already, Mike just talked to her yesterday, right? And so, you know, I, I don't know how many, how many multiple pitches you get from, from PR agencies, from different people, but I think that's a systemic problem, at least among the agency side, probably not so much on the producer side, but, you know, when a producer is tr- working with an agency, that's something they should consider. I was going to say, I feel your pain though, Thea, because I used to write for Spin Magazine and freelance with music magazines whenever I first uh, moved to Austin. And I I swear to you, I haven't written for that magazine for a good seven years. And I still have an inbox with like 2000 impersonal pitches. And it's just the most off-putting thing. (laughs) Well, and you know what happens to impersonal pitches? They get deleted. If you can't even understand that I'm not for my first name is not fermentation, let alone Tom Mark. And I know Tom personally and we're friends, but come on, people. Somebody mail merged inappropriately 10 years ago and never fixed it. But having the ability even to see, because the death of a large agency is people don't talk to each other. And so I will get two or three pitches in a week from the same agency, but different people because they're not using a CRM and they can't see that I was pitched a product last week. But the other benefit of having a CRM or something to track this is saying, oh, well, we pitched the, uh, you know, some wine last year, but she didn't have time or wasn't interested and didn't respond. So I'm not going to pitch her the same wine this year. Let's pitch her something else and see what happens. That doesn't happen enough, unfortunately, because people aren't tracking that metric. Yeah, it's a data point. It's a data point that people aren't tracking, right? Right. Yeah. And it can be difficult to do, you know, especially, I know, some of the bigger, um, resources out there like Meltwater, Cision, even Agility PR can be cost prohibitive to a very small company. And even those things, they aren't necessarily updating their own databases as much as they should be. Um, I actually am doing that uh, at William Chris Vineyards. (laughs) Um, So this is um, kind of a beta, but um, I've I've built a custom sort of uh, what I like to call a CDP, but really it's more of an audience-based thing or data platform. It authenticates across different platforms, but I'm using landing pages to collect my media RSVPs. So I have a segment of my CRM system that is tagging individual media uh, that feeds into my Commerce 7 system under groups and guest tags and things like that. So uh, if they visit our tasting room, even just as a customer, they're already tagged with that information and what kind of interactions they've had with us. Um, I just rolled that out with our last press release on on the grand opening of William Chris's new tasting room. But um, the response is pretty awesome. And then I can see all of the interactions that these folks have had uh, with me through the marketing automation and CRM system that I already had in place. so it's pretty cool. Anyway. <laughs> and I think that's that's a really great point. You know, I, I come from a background of technology and to Emma's point, it doesn't have to be cost prohibitive. And I think what happens in PR and marketing is people get locked into legacy tools. And this happens in the wine industry as well. You don't have to get locked into those legacy tools. I work with MailChimp and Salesforce and a number of other smaller CRMs every day, all day long. And I know who opened my email, when I sent it, who sent it, you know, who did I send it to, what the last 10 emails you got were. All of that is possible if people are willing to look beyond the legacy tools. So even something like MailChimp, which it really has now become CRM light, you can use MailChimp as your database. You can put custom attributes in your database. You can you know, track all the opens. You can do campaign automation with a few clicks. And I think people are a little bit afraid because in the wine beverage industry in particular, they're so used to what they've been doing for the last 30, 40, 50 years. They're scared to look at outside that industry and looking at CPG, for example, you know, looking at other industries where they're doing really cool things with marketing automation and CRM associated with that, that are hugely powerful and don't have to be a thousand dollars a month because my clients can't afford a thousand dollars a month either. Well, that's, you know, thanks for bringing that up. The, uh, you know, the marketing automation, um, and, uh, email marketing, you know, these are, these are uh, really effective tools. You know, you, uh, Tara, it's fantastic that you're using landing pages, especially on the PR side, because, you know, that's, um, that is, can be a very time consuming activity, but by automating that process, you know, you are, um, cutting down on the amount of work that has to go into it, but also improving the quality of your data. 
exactly. The data authentication is is a big piece um, of that for me. So um, we have kind of migrated away from those legacy products, but I think that also has a lot to do with me coming from the outside the wine industry into William Chris. Uh, but I have to say the executive team there has really fully embraced it. Um, and it can be a lot more cost effective than you might think, um, using templates and tools that are, that are set up in things like MailChimp light and, and those kinds of, um, those kinds of things that are right there. You just might overlook them right now, but they've, they're there. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, and even just that using something like HubSpot, you know, there are very expensive solutions for HubSpot, but you can, you can break into that for 50 bucks a month. Uh, and you can put some pretty simple, uh, marketing automation in place. You know, we use a system called SharpSpring for what we do. And it is a powerful tool that has not only CRM, but also has those marketing automation tools. You can build workflows and, you know, so for a, for a club, like a wine club, for instance, you know, it would be really powerful tool to be able to automate a lot of those functions that those DTC managers are spending hours and hours a day trying to trying to do. And all of that means is, you know, making sure that you have a, a way to collect customer data in a way that you are able to automate those processes. And I think that's where landing pages come into play and using an effective CRM and marketing automation tool or the combination of the both, where you can collect the critical data, but don't overwhelm the consumers or the media when you're trying to you know, get that information. Because as a person in the media, one of the most frustrating things is, oh, we want to know all about you. Fill out this 400 page form. Like, well, I don't really have time to do that to go to your event. I know you. I like you. I just want to go to this event. You have my name. You have my website. I'm done. So I think there's a balance there that has to happen because people think, oh, great, we want all this information, but they don't think about the critical factor and the time that it takes to fill out those forms. It's a good point. I've, I can't tell you how many really long forms I've been asked to fill out. <laughs> that you just abandon and don't finish. Right. Exactly. Because like, I don't have time for that. Oh, yeah. Like, or even just to go to acupuncture, you have to have 12 pages of intake I mean, it's everywhere yeah. but like it's literal data points yeah. right yeah but i mean you know uh, that's it's a good point it's like you know there's there's a little too much reliance on some of these what we call classic activities like you know surveys i can't tell you how many european clients that we've worked with that they have to have a survey because it, you know it's the European Union requires that they have a survey to measure how well their programs are doing. And I tell them continually that, you know what, Americans hate surveys and they don't fill them out. If they do, if they do fill them out, they are lying through their teeth. So you, there's not clean data from that process. Well, in the marketing, the uh, DMA Association, Direct Marketing Association has done ridiculous amounts of research on this and the number of questions that are asked and answered over 50% uh, is less than 10, yeah. less than 10. And even 10 is a lot of questions yeah, when is. you think about it. It is. I would say five or less because you can always yeah. follow up, yeah. right? You, exactly. You know, if you can get, if you can get somebody to, to fill out a five survey, five question survey and follow up with them later with follow-up questions, there you go. Well, and decision trees are your friend then. And when you're looking at something like SurveyMonkey, which is negligible in terms of cost, you can build decision trees and you can build all this automation in there. But I think people just don't realize that. And the same thing with marketing automation. I don't send out these emails to my clients by myself. They're automated. Yeah. And people think I'm doing all this work. But I'm like, no, it, you click a button, you program it, it's done. But you get all the benefit of it. Yeah. So just making you know making it clear about what's going on. And even as a member of the media, you know, I miss a lot of emails because I get 4,000 emails a day. Right. But knowing that you should resend an email at least three times if you really want a good open rate. Sending it once doesn't really help, especially if you don't know the right times to send your emails. That That's where the workflows yep. come in very handy and you can do the yep. if then branching and then churn your contacts so that you're not hitting them with things they don't exactly. want. Mm -hmm. so. Exactly right. You know, I think um, a lot of that though has to do with just a lack of expertise um, within organizations that we know that just they don't necessarily know that they can that these tools are there to help them and even if they are then they feel that there's a huge learning curve 
to it. And oftentimes nowadays, it's pretty straightforward and simple. And there are plenty of people out there, i.e. us, who can help <laughs> put, you know, uh, put them on the right path. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite things about being with Balzac is the fact that we aren't afraid to try these new things and try sharp spraying. You know, Iris PR is another example that we've just started working with that it gives you a specific code that you can attach to any email you send. And then whatever correspondence you've got there, it tracks and it pulls itself into a client dashboard on their website. So you can see, oh, Mike sent this out. Um, but I'm seeing this person tonight so I can remind them about such and such, or I know exactly what's going on there. Whereas in, you know, in other positions I've had, it's very much, no, this is what we've worked with in the past. This is what we're going to continue working with. And it's just great to be able to be somewhere that is excited about innovation and learning. And it makes a Aww, huge difference. Thanks, Emma. <laughs> <laughs> feeling the love. I agree, Emma. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, though. Well, Hooray for it. innovation. I mean, that's it, isn't it? I mean, you know, you have to innovate or stagnate. You know, it's a cliche, but, you know, today there are how many wineries out there around the world? 100,000, 200,000? Who knows how many there actually are? Oh. There right. are more than 600 in Texas. Yeah. I can tell you that. There are over so 300 in 400 in California. Alone. So, <laughs> Right. So, there and that's just, that's, just, that's just domestic, right? <laughs> right. That's, that's not even counting your first leaf and your wink and all of those folks right. that are playing this digital marketing game and this uh, automation game head and shoulders above where wineries are but um they're not actually makers so if you know how to tell your story i, I want to bring it back to the pr aspect of it if you know how to really share your story the value that you bring to your audience and you understand what your audience is looking for and how they connect with you and how various pieces of content uh or offers and things like that resonate with them that's where that's where you can really really see some yeah. results so, so. Uh, Tara, you mentioned earlier um, influencers. So that's a buzz phrase that has been bandied about quite a bit. Uh, and there's a lot of, I think, uh, misinformation and misunderstanding behind that term. I was wondering if you can let us know how, what you consider to be your influencers. Sure. Um <sighs> It, it kind of depends, but I don't approach influencers as let's just throw up one or two posts and call it a day. Um, I will take the data out of my CRM systems and, and such and identify by direct market area to Thea's point of somebody in California is not apt to come to a grape stomp in Texas. Like why would I focus on a Napa influencer um, if that were the case? So um, I identify what markets I'm going after. Um, I hyper-focus on what their following looks like, how engaged their following is, and then what type of content that they are producing to make sure that that's all on brand and in line with what it is that I'm trying to accomplish, working backwards from the end result you're looking for. Um, so I don't just like carpet bomb the Instagram space. Uh, what I do is I work with one or two uh, influencers per key DMA or, or, or GeoZone, and I work out a content calendar with them, including the offers, and then we have measurables on either end. So, you know, it's kind of like a service level agreement that I work out with them on, am I engaging your audience with my product and vice versa? Uh, is this going to be a mutually beneficial relationship? But I, I don't really respond to like the influencer marketing agencies or people that are pay to play because um, I don't find that to be truly influential. Uh, I think that the key to the influencer space is um, they have that sort of 
trust from their audience. That's what you were going for. And I think it, like you said, it's just become kind of a buzzword that it's gravitated away from what I guess I consider it to be, um, where those folks are really truly an extension of your brand and brand advocates. It's just a brand advocate or ambassador in the digital space, if that makes sense. So then does, do, do you actually pay these people to do this or is it some other kind of agreement? No, I don't pay these people to do it. No, that's what, that's where I say, let's work out a quid pro quo, a service level agreement kind of thing. What do you need to get out of this relationship to help build or engage your audience? This is what I'm looking to do with my brand. How can you help me do this? And how can I help build your audience or satisfy your audience? Um, but that starts with understanding who that audience is. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to carpet bomb somebody that focuses on bourbon whiskeys of the world and things like that. With hey, post uh, William Chris Morvedra. That doesn't make any sense. So, but uh, to that's a long answer to your question. But to your point, no, I I try to avoid the pay to play arrangements, um, just because I think that kind of undermines the nature of what an influencer is and what that kind of that that trust needs to be if they need to add in the like hashtag ad or whatever it is and some of them still do that and i'm 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 okay with it but there's not really a financial agreement in the middle well but i think we we have some legal obligations as well as influencers slash media so even if we're not paid you know if we're paid in wine we're paid in experiences we still have to put that in there so that's a tricky situation for all of us both on the winery end and on the influencer slash media end but i think it's it's important to know that you know I, I love your philosophy, first of all, but second, I think it's important to be really clear that you have to have that relationship with your influencers, which you do, but I don't think enough people do that. And I think that is the frustration of some of the more traditional media. You know, for example, I have readers all over the world and a lot of them are actually in New York and a lot are in Canada as well as in the UK and Australia. I don't just write about California wine. I write about wines from all over the world, but I'm often stymied by some some PR agencies that think, oh, well, you're in California, only people from California drink California wine and write about California wine. So getting outside of that box and expanding the thought process on the agency side is really important to get a better quality media representation. Well, and again, that comes down to, you know, let's bring it back to the whole subject of this, of this discussion. And that is, you know, what kind of information do we have about you? You know, and how, you know, um, you, know, you and I have known each other for. Oh, oh, don't say it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A long, just, long I, time. I, I just had to think about that. Uh, <laughs> so you know, but part of it is that you know, you and I, you and I have built a relationship, and right. you know, but either through face to face, through any number of, of of ways, and so there's really you know, it's kind of funny because you know, we're talking about leveraging data. Um, but there's really no substitute for having a relationship. But in order to build that relationship, you got to start somewhere. You got to have a way of keeping track of what it is that you are actually doing and, and who you are actually talking to so that you can start that relationship or you can nurture that relationship. Absolutely. And I think people forget that, you know, both on the marketing side of, of wine and on the media side of wine, people forget that wine is a relationship business. You know, and I work with a wine school and I do a lot of their CRM and their, their data analytics for that reason, because they didn't have that before I joined them. And now it's a completely different world because we know who took what class, when they took what class, who we can pitch to them, if their media, what their interests are, where they've gone in the world, have they gone on a cruise? You know, we have a lot of information that allows us to build a relationship specifically, but also allows us to market to them at a different level. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, life is about relationships. So Emma, Emma, Emma knows this really well. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, she's uh, she's an ace at this at this <laughs> piece. Of, so, so Emma, how do you how do you keep track of of the relationships that you have? And like, you know, how is you know how what I mean, what recommendations would you make to producers who are listening to this podcast uh, about you know what they should do in order in, in order to you know use those use those data points in their in their public relations efforts? Uh, well, I think um, one of the biggest things that has always worked for me 
um, even working with specific clients is starting to put out kind of like a one-on-one happy hour sort of situation if you are in an area where a lot of media are located. I've gotten pushback on it in the past, but it's been a way to really get that relationship going where you send out an email and say, hey, I'm starting, you know, bubbles with, I used to work for Louie Rotor. So, you know, it was like Fridays with Louie or I forget what I called it. But it was one of those things where I was able to, four months on end, have every Friday I was meeting with somebody else. And those people then really became good friends and also brand advocates. But also now that I'm not in a place where there is a ton of media in our business, like I'm in Ohio right now, I make it a point to go through my personal contacts every Friday and I send five emails and say, hey, how are you doing? I haven't been in touch for a while. This is what's going on with me. What's going on with you? And it just is a way to keep people in touch. That's that's a that's a great little pointer. We should have saved that one for the uh, tip of the week. Tip of the week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't think enough people do that though, and I think that makes sure that really gives yeah. you distinction because I mean, obviously, I've been writing for a long time, so I have contacts at a lot of the bigger agencies and a lot of the smaller ones. And the smaller ones, people move around a lot, which we follow. But yeah, it's literally, I will have been working with someone at a large pair agency out of New York for 10 years and I've worked with her a lot and she still doesn't know I live in California. (laughs) Another thing I do too, whenever I travel is I reach out to people who are in the city I'm traveling to and say, Hey, I'm here for a couple of days. Can you get together for a drink? And that works great too. It's like, I'll try and line up a breakfast, a lunch, a dinner, a drink in the middle, whatever, just to be able to get FaceTime with people. Because a lot of times until you can get that FaceTime, people don't treat you in a way that is really conducive to a relationship with your brand. It's more of a passive thing. And that FaceTime, it seriously can turn everything around. Absolutely, It does really like uh, anytime that I have William or Chris on the road, uh, visiting accounts, I like to get ahead of their schedule and then plug in a few media pitches, the folks that I know might've missed him at various other appearances and things like that too. So I'm glad that you mentioned that Emma, because it's a really, really powerful tool for making that personal connection um, and offering FaceTime with our, our winemakers, with our founders, whenever they're on the road. There is a, yeah, that absolutely. We do that a lot for our clients, but there's a slight um, distinction between what Emma's saying and what, what you're saying. And that is that like for Emma, it's not about like going, going out and pitching uh, anything really. It's just a matter of building that relationship, building that rapport. It's, you know, you're not going into it with the idea of you're basically saying, I want you to write about my wines. It is a matter of, Hey, I'm just really interested in meeting up with somebody really, who's really smart who I like the writing. I just want to get to know you. There's a, there's a slight difference between those two things and the one will lead to the, the other, but you know, the, that, that person, that media person will be much more likely to meet with you in the future if you've already built that rapport. So again, sure. you know, that, sure. that goes, it goes, goes back to, you know, how do we, how do we, it's funny. It's kind of, you know, it's, this is a relation. It's obviously about public relations, it's the relations, public relations, but, uh, you know, using those data points uh, and using the, using your your database to be able to track these activities and using, as we said earlier, about uh, you know any like market trends or whatever that we can use to leverage to to create those interesting articles. So, unfortunately, guys, we are out of time. There are so many more things that we could actually talk about. We could probably go on. We can probably go on for hours. <laughs> So many more things. I so I think we're going to have to. Uh, uh, I'm just agree. getting going over here. We didn't even touch on <laughs> attribution. <laughs> we're we're going to have to agree to meet up again and talk a little bit more um, on the subject. So thank you a ton, Emma, Thea, Tara, for being on with me on Hit the Bottle. I really appreciate it. And um, we will see you next time. We need, we need part two. We definitely need part two. All right. Thanks for having me. You're a fun group. 
Hi, everyone. It's Emma here with this episode's tip of the week, how to gain consumer data while simultaneously earning their trust. The data on that is in, and nearly 60% of consumers wait a month or more before giving their data to a brand, likely because 55% of those consumers don't know how their data is being used. So how does a marketer gain the data they need while cultivating a relationship of mutual trust at the same time? With so much dark data out there, sharing information without consent, whether perceived or otherwise, and the general uptick of spam email and junk snail mail, it makes sense that consumers are really skeptical. In this world, transparency is key for every marketing team. You need to set up clear policies and statements surrounding data utilization, personalize the experience for the customer as much as possible, and seriously, just don't sell their information. Receiving a free subscription to Midwest Living Magazine when you live in Manhattan can be enough to send a customer running to unsubscribe from all of their newsletters and revoking any data you may have gained. The big takeaway here is this. Be upfront with the customer. Make it easy to understand not only why you want their data, but how you will use it to better understand and help them, not the other way around, and not bombarding them with irrelevant products and newsletters. I hope you can use this week's tip. Until next time, I'm Emma Criswell. This has been Hit the Bottle, a production of Balzac Communications and Marketing. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. If you like this podcast, please rate and review the show. Thank you for joining us. Until next week.